Well, April 15th, 2016, is one of my favorite days of my entire life. Uh, it is not the day that my wife and I got married. That's, that's up there. Uh, it is not the day one of my kids were born. April 15th, 2016 was the very first day I ever ate Raising Cane's chicken fingers. Uh, if you've had Cane's uh, and you are a Christian, surely you agree with me. Um, it is a true delight to the senses. Uh, it is, the, you know, the, the nectar of the gods, cane sauce, the Texas toast. Uh, it, is, it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience. Uh, and I, I share that to say there is a sense in which food is a, a theme of my life. I love good food. Uh, and Raising Cane's is, is right near the top. It's definitely my fast, favorite fast food place. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, you know, up there, you know, my wife's cooking's here, and then Cane's is like right there. Uh, so, yeah, if you've had Cane's, you know what I'm talking about. And I also think it is very, very godly of me to love food because the story of the Bible is a story about food. That is what we are unpacking here today, this biblical theme of food. Uh, and I need, before we really dive in, I need to give two disclaimers for this teaching. One, uh, some of you probably walked in today and thought, great, this is, this is what I need. It's the new year. I'm thinking about doing like a diet or something like that. A biblical teaching on food. This is going to kind of set the trajectory for me and I'm going to, you know, this new diet or whatever I'm doing is going to be great. Uh, I will say nothing whatsoever that will help you or encourage you. Maybe it might encourage you. But this teaching is not about dieting for the new year. Uh, it is not about, uh, yeah, the, here's some healthy eating habits. That is not the point of this teaching. Uh, and the second disclaimer uh, is uh, that uh, food, as we unpack this biblical theme, is a slightly different kind of theme than, uh, for instance, kingdom, what Jared talked about last week. So there are certain themes of the Bible uh, that are so structurally significant to the storyline of the scriptures that uh, like, there is no Bible. The, the, the message is completely different if we just take everything that has to do with kingdom out of it, right? Is the, the story of the Bible is the story of kingdom. Uh, food, uh, I have said, food is this, the Bible is a story about food, but it's kind of a story about food in a different way than it's a story about a kingdom. So it's more like a plot line, a thread that runs through the scriptures that uh, when we get to certain passages, we remember previous passages and we're like, wow, that's what, that's what Jesus was saying there. Uh, you understand what I mean about that as we continue. Um, but just all that to say, our structure is going to be a little bit different uh, as, we, as we go through this, if you've got your handout, you, you may have already uh, noticed that, um, and I'll, I'll explain the structure here in a little bit. Uh, but this semester, right, is about uh, biblical themes or biblical theology, which is kind of the big umbrella bucket that we're under. Biblical themes is, is kind of a subcategory of that. Uh, I'll probably use them interchangeably. Um, but the terminology, I do think it's helpful kind of here at the beginning of the semester to talk for just a second about the terminology of biblical theology. What do we mean when we say biblical theology? Uh, we are not saying theology that's biblical, if, which is confusing, right? You're like, biblical theology, how is that not theology that's 
is biblical. I don't know what we're doing here today. Uh, I think all theology should be biblical. Hopefully you do too. So whether we're doing systematic theology, it should be biblical. Or historical theology, it should be biblical. Biblical theology uh, is kind of a specific focus in theology where we see the, the continuity, the cohesion of the scriptures as a single story. So we could talk about how there's, you know, Moses wrote the first five books and, you know, Matthew wrote the first gospel and John wrote Revelation and all these different authors. Biblical theology kind of steps back and says, God is the author of the whole Bible. What story is he telling through these different authors? Uh, and so our aim is to see how Christ is the climax of that story uh, and to understand how everything leads to and flows from him. So we saw that last week uh, with kingdom, right? So the Bible is a story about a kingdom that was lost, that uh, God promised to reclaim, uh, that he came to, uh, that the king came down to, to restore, uh, and he will one day bring it to completion. Uh, and last week, Jared gave us three reasons for studying biblical themes. So uh, if you have, remember your, from last week, or you have your notes from then, the three things Jared said were to know God's word, uh, which is to be the people of Psalm 1, to delight in the Scriptures. Uh, the second reason for studying biblical themes, to see God and to uh, see ourselves rightly. And the third is to delight in Jesus, to really behold his beauty. And I, I think those are all great reasons, and I, I fully endorse all that Jared said. Uh, but I want to add one more that kind of infuses all of those. So how do we know God's Word? How do we see God and ourselves rightly? How do we delight in Jesus through biblical theology, biblical themes. Uh, and we do that uh, because, or through biblical themes because the significance of any event is tied to the story that it's in. The significance of any event is tied to the story it's in. So, for example, I could just tell you, Argentina won the World Cup. That's true. But that's not the whole story. To understand the significance of that, I have to tell you about how, uh, you know, there's this big debate about how Messi's the greatest ever, but the big knock is he's never won the World Cup. Uh, and then they lost their first game to Saudi Arabia, who was supposed to be terrible. And then they turned things around and they like won everything all the way through. And Jared was crying and uh, everything was, was great, right? And, and so there's this, when you see the story, you understand the significance. Uh, some of you are, are confused because you're good Americans and you need a football analogy. So don't worry, I'm here for you. This is, this is why they hired me. Um, I could just tell you the Vikings beat the Colts a few weeks ago. That's true. That happened. Uh, but that does not capture the significance of the event. No, I need to tell you how the Colts were up 33 to 0 and had a 99.6% chance of winning, uh, and how Jeff Saturday's their coach and he's been criticized, and how Matt Ryan's their quarterback and he was on the losing side of the biggest uh, upset or what do you comeback in Super Bowl history. Uh, the, the story communicates the significance. That's why we're studying these themes, so we can see things in their canonical context. So when we come to a meal in the Bible, we know the meals that come before and the meals that come after, and we see what God is doing right there. So, uh, yeah, what in the world, why are we talking about food? 
Uh, this, food, is, food is not the standard fare of biblical theology that you would think, right? So there's the obvious ones I've talked about, like kingdom or covenant. Like, yeah, obviously the Bible's about a kingdom. Obviously the Bible's about these covenants. Why are we talking about food? Uh, and uh, yeah, we're, uh, we'll see how each meal in the Bible communicates this big story. And we'll see how, uh, I'm actually going to teach you to do this, you could actually share the gospel with someone only talking about food. I'm not talking about some weird, like, you know, hamburger analogy, like the, you know, the meat is our sin and the ketchup is blood and it covers us and the bun is the Holy Spirit. So, like, I just made that up. Uh, maybe, maybe, someone, maybe that's a real thing. I don't know. Don't use that. It's lame. Uh, I'm talking about how actually the Bible communicates this message through meals in a, a really profound way. So, uh, our outline first, we're going to briefly trace that big picture theological theme across the whole scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we'll get that in front of us, and then we'll kind of fill out that picture. Secondly, uh, by looking at how food functions in the Bible, they'll kind of fill in the details. Uh, and then thirdly and finally, we will think about how this applies to our own lives, how, uh, how to apply the story the Bible tells through food. So, the story of the Bible is a story about food. We see food first in creation. That's chapter 1. Look at Genesis 1.29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So at the very beginning, God gives his creation, he gives mankind what they need to eat. He provides for them. When God created, he did not create uh, a creature that was completely self-sufficient. Like, like God could just drop us here and then step away. They'll be fine. Uh, God created dependent creatures, mankind, in our own nature. We are dependent creatures. We, uh, we need things uh, like Food. So in the garden, even before the fall, we depended on food in a, in a sense. So that, that shows us two things. God was doing something by wiring into our biology a, a dependence. Uh, the first was to remind us that we need God, that we, just as we need food, we need God because he provides food. That's what he's doing here in chapter 1 through creation. God is providing for us. He's showing us that we are dependent on him and that he will provide what we need. He will satisfy our stomachs. Adam and Eve never once hungered, never once, because God constantly was satisfying and filling them with everything they need by providing for them through food. Uh, and the second thing we see in creation, very simply, is that food is good. Food is a good thing. God made it. It is part of the very good that he says at the end of creation. It is a, a gift that he gives. So that's the message at creation, God's provision. He cares for us. He shows our dependence on him through food. But only two chapters later, food shows up again in Genesis 3 in a bad way. So look now at Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest 
you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You ever noticed how many times in the account of our fall in Genesis 3, eating comes up? It is the most common verb in the passage, uh, which is kind of shocking. We don't think of our fall uh, being intensely you know, about food, but that's exactly what it is. It, it shows up again. I showed it again and again. I underline it for you there in your notes. It's, uh, remember, God gave us food to show us that he will always completely, perfectly provide for us. And so Satan, the serpent, says, well, if I can, if I can twist that... If I can convince them that, that, that food is actually not what God says it is, that, it, that, he's, not, that he's holding back, that he's not really providing for them, if I can do that, I've, I've got them. And that's exactly what he does. He makes them question, is this really a gift or is God holding something back? And then when they, they take the fruit, all of Humankind is plunged into darkness and death. Our corruption happened through food. It is the mechanism for our fall was something that Adam and Eve ate. So they're expelled from the garden. They had all the food they could ever want, and they're, they're kicked out. And verse 17 in Genesis 3 there is part of the curse. God says to them, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So this thing that was a sign of God's provision, God's blessing, God as a gift from God actually becomes part of becomes corrupted. We have to toil, we have to be in pain, we have to uh, become tired and endure uh, yeah, endure evil uh, in order to get food. This thing that showed God's provision has become a source of frustration. And why did it happen? Again, cuz Satan convinced Eve in verse 6 to take and to eat. And the very next time those two words appear together in the Bible, take and eat, is Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat. This is my body. So set in that story, do you see the significance of what Jesus is doing? Satan convinced Eve, take and eat, reject God, serve yourself with this food. And Jesus says, take and eat. I'll be rejected by God. I'll serve you with this food. He is saying, set in that story, I'm here to undo everything the evil one has done. The corruption that he introduced through food, guess what? I'm going to redeem and change and undo everything he has done. So as with every biblical theme, we will see Jesus is the climax. It should not be surprising. He's Jesus. Everything points to and flows from him. It is fundamentally his story, and food is no exception. Jesus is ultimate food. He tells us, take and eat. This is my body. So Food teaches us to rely on God, and in Christ, he has provided 
for us. Food is a source of pleasure. It's this gift. It's a good thing, remember? A source of pleasure, satisfaction. Christ is the one who offers infinite joy. Uh, So I have a quote here for you from John Stark from his book, The Possibility of Prayer, that kind of unpacks this, I think, really well. He, He says, When the soldiers heard him cry out, they gave him a sponge full of sour, bitter wine. Remember that because of our sin, we deserve that sour, bitter drink with its wrath and condemnation. But Christ, the perfect Son, drank the bitterness for us. He cried out for God and dreamed about the feast. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Jesus had experienced that feast with the Father from all eternity. Now he experienced thirst and hunger. But because he thirsted, our thirst can be quenched. Because he went hungry, our hunger is satisfied. So food was there at creation, there at the very beginning, a sign of our dependence on God. Food was there at the fall, the very mechanism for our rejection of God. It was there at our redemption in the body and blood of Christ. It, it is what God gives us to, uh, for our salvation. And finally, uh, we should not be surprised, food will be there at the consummation. That's, that's chapter 4 in our story, Revelation 19, verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Here we get this promise. It's throughout the whole Bible that uh, of this coming feast, that at the end of time, we will sit with our God. We will get to dine with him and share in this wonderful meal where all our desires, all our need for provision from God will be fully and finally met with supreme satisfaction, with with feasting, where where these morsels that we get a taste of today in the Lord's Supper won't just be this this little bit of sustenance we get, but it will become a banquet that we'll enjoy forever because we'll be with our God and He will fully and finally satisfy us. So that's, that's the big story, the, the story of the Bible in four meals. Uh, it's a story about food. We've kind of now traced across the, the whole big picture of the Scriptures. Uh, but there are a lot more meals than just those four in the Bible. Uh, and I want to be clear, those are the main meals. Those tell the main story. And with that in mind, we can understand what every other meal in the Bible is doing. Uh, so it's kind of what we're going to do next. We're going to look at how food functions in the scriptures, and that will we'll touch on a lot of the other meals that, that take place along the biblical narrative. Uh, so the, the short answer to the function of food in the Bible is food is a metonymy. Food is a metonymy. Uh, if you don't know what that means, I defined it for you here. This is, I didn't look up a dictionary definition. Uh, this is my understanding of what it means, but it's something like this. Uh, A metonymy is a single image that represents something bigger than itself. So it's not just like a metaphor. It's uh, so we might we might refer to the crown and be talking about the whole British government or the British monarchy or the nation of uh, of Great Britain as a whole, right? So we're not talking about a literal crown, but that image captures a a bigger reality. Uh, We could also talk about Hollywood. 
When I say Hollywood, I'm not talking about, you know, just the, the sign on the side of the cliff, whatever. I've never been there, but, you know, I'm talking about that, that thing there. I don't know if it's still there anyway. Um, we're not talking about that. We're not necessarily even talking about an area. Maybe we're talking about movies uh, or maybe we're talking about celebrity culture. So a, a, a single image can kind of correspond as a metonymy for, for different things uh, depending on the context. But the point is a meal is never just a meal. It's never just a meal. They're never just sitting down and eating food at a table. There's something else going on. Uh, and food is a metonymy uh, for several things. I've got five answers here for you. Uh, and they'll all kind of overlap a little bit. Uh, you'll be like, well, kind of similar to that one. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, there, there should be a bit of overlap because it's the same image. But uh, So what, what, is, what is food a metonymy for? The, the first thing is for fellowship or for, for union. So uh, this is probably the most common example in the Bible, the most consistent meaning of food. When you share a meal with someone, you're saying, we are together. We are united. We are sharing a fellowship uh, through this meal. That's what we're communicating. So look at uh, Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I, that's Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, you, you might read that and think, like, what's the big deal? <laughs> like, okay, Peter got to sit at the cool kids' table during lunch. Who cares? Like, what's, what, what is, what's the big deal here? Uh, but Paul says that Peter refusing to eat with the Gentiles at a meal was conduct, quote, not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's a stunning statement, that he, him refusing to eat with someone is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Why? Like, what, what, what's the big deal? Uh, because a meal communicates union. And Paul, Peter was saying, I'm not united with those Gentiles, which is anti-gospel, because the gospel breaks down the walls of Jew and Gentile. It makes one people out of many. And so, so, so there's a sense in which refusing to eat a meal with someone is saying, I'm not with you, and that's false. You are with them. You believe in the same Savior. You are united, Peter. What you are saying by not sharing that meal is anti-gospel. We see that we see uh, this kind of this metonymy of, of fellowship Across many meals in the Bible, so Jesus eats meals with sinners, which reminds us of Isaiah 53, where it says he was counted among the transgressors. He has come to identify with and take the place of sinners. He shares meals with them to show that union. We see this today in our own culture. So in December, there was a big news story. Uh, Donald Trump was, was eating dinner with Kanye West and uh, some guy who's apparently a, a white supremacist. Uh, and, and no one knows what they talked about. 
but the, the point is it was a news story because people know that who you share a meal with says something. I'm not trying to make a, a political statement, but I'm just pointing out that we know when you share a meal with someone, it's not just food at the table. You are communicating something. Uh, when the serpent didn't, he didn't really eat the fruit in the garden, but there's a sense when the serpent invited Adam and Eve to partake, they were sharing a meal with the evil one. They were sharing a meal with Satan. They were communicating a union with him over and against God who had provided for them. And when we take the Lord's Supper together as a church, we are sharing a meal we are saying we are together. We come from different places uh, and all these different things, but guess what? what? We are united. We have this fellowship, and we're saying that through a meal. Uh, the second uh, metonymy that food uh, corresponds with is forgiveness. So when you share a meal with someone, it, it might communicate some, some restoration to your relationship. So John 21 Verse 9, this is after the resurrection, uh, there's the miraculous catch of fish, uh, and this is one of the resurrection appearances where Jesus appears to his disciples and says, they see him from the shore, and then 21 verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So, so uh, this is kind of a weird detail here in the scriptures. It's like, why do we need to know, John, that Jesus made them a meal, and why does we need to know he cooked it over a charcoal fire? It's kind of Kind of random, what's the point? Uh, until you remember three chapters earlier in John 18, 18, Peter is warming his hands at a charcoal fire. It is exactly the same word. Uh, and, and that's he's warming his hands at a charcoal fire when he denies Jesus. When he says, oh, I don't, I don't know who that guy is. I've, I've never met him. I'm, I'm not one of his disciples. And Jesus is saying, come, I'm going to share a meal with you at the very kind of spot that makes you remember your sin, your rejection of me. I'm restoring fellowship. I'm coming back uh, together with you. I'm communicating this forgiveness. I want to sit and eat with you. Uh, third, uh, metonymy, uh, food represents future salvation across the scriptures. So uh, it's, it's obviously kind of similar to forgiveness, but I'm kind of just highlighting here that uh, when the Bible talks about eternity, when it talks about uh, the new heavens and the new earth, it often does so through meal imagery. So I'm not going to read these uh, Isaiah passages here for you, Isaiah 25 and, and 55. You can do that in your own time. Uh, but the first one basically describes the, the abundance, the, the satisfaction and joy of, uh, of salvation, of, of eternity with God as a feast of rich food. So that, that, that's, we will be totally satisfied. We will be to completely together with our God at this future salvation. We will be fully nourished uh, through food. Uh, in Isaiah 55, similarly, verse 1 talks about come, buy, and eat. Verse 3, so that your soul may live. Uh, which both of those uh, promises, both of those passages are picked up in, in Revelation, the exact same wording uh, to describe our future hope of being together with God. So it's a reminder of what we, we saw in the garden, that they relied on God for food, and one day God, what was lost, will be restored completely. We will have that full salvation. Uh, the twisting of food will be undone. Fourth, uh, fourth metonymy uh, that it represents, food represents, is uh, for provision or security. It's kind of uh, 
different things, but I put them together uh, because provision often means security. So uh, when the Bible talks about being provided for, it means that you're actually secure. We, we see that in, in several places. Uh, for example, Exodus chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you, but that's where God rains manna down from heaven. Remember, God's people are, are walking in the wilderness, so they're, they're kind of in a, a barren wasteland. There's no food for them. They're complaining, oh, didn't we have such great meals back in Egypt? We miss, we miss Egypt's food. Uh, and God says, guess what? I'm going to rain bread and quail down from the skies for you. I'm going to provide for you so that you are secure in this, uh, this foreign wilderness land, a hostile environment. You won't starve. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he's showing them the same thing he showed in the garden, right? That he provides and he will still provide. We, we see this also, uh, just two more brief examples of provision or security with, with food, uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 17 is fed by ravens, which is so weird and funny, I feel like. Not because he's Dr. Doolittle, right, who can talk with animals and convinces the ravens to bring him nice food, uh, but because God is saying, this is my faithful prophet. I will make sure he's provided for and secure. I'm going to use, you know, this crazy miraculous, I'm going to teach these ravens to bring him food to show that uh, he is mine. I will provide for and make, make him secure. And a very clear example, Psalm 23, verse 5. Uh, David is praying, you know Psalm 23. Uh, he, he says, you prepare, you God, prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So David can sit down and feast with enemies all around him because God is guarding him. God is watching over him. He is secure. The food shows him that. Uh, fifth and final metonymy, food represents joy or celebration. Th this probably is one of the more, this one's the, probably the most familiar to us, right? When someone gets married or graduates high school or college or, or whatever, when, when a big event happens, what do you do? You throw a party, Right, you feast, you have a big old meal together and eat a bunch of food. I gave you one biblical example of this just because I think it's hilarious. Uh, Genesis 21 says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. Nursing mothers in the room, got to love that one. Like the, the weaning period is over, so we're throwing a party. Um, obviously, there's, I could have put a lot of other uh, examples. Every time someone gets married in the Bible, there's a feast. Uh, anytime there's a treaty made between two warring parties, they share a meal, which again is, is fellowship. We're united now. But also there's this joy, right? And, uh, and that's obviously co going to correspond most uh, with, uh, at the end of the Bible, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we are with our God forever, it's not just uh, He's providing for us, it's this, this picture of great joy and celebration because we get to feast, we get to be together with our God. And obviously also, uh, that marriage supper of the Lamb, if you read Revelation 19, you see in context, it's the destruction of evil that has just taken place. So uh, when God destroys evil forever, he throws a party to celebrate. Uh, so uh, there, those, those five metonymies, uh, I, we, we can't stop there without recognizing the two primary meals in the scriptures for God's people uh, where I think all five of those are present. 
So for uh, the Old Testament, that meal is the Passover. It's Exodus chapter 12. Uh, and that's where we see unity among God's people, right? So the Egyptians are not invited to partake in the Passover. This is for God's people. It's very explicit, very clear. This is a meal for your people. And after, after the Exodus, when this becomes something they do regularly, uh, there's very specific, strict rules about the foreigner participating. He has to be circumcised, has to keep the, the commandments and all these things. He has to really be a part of the people of God in order to partake in that meal because it is something that is, there's a unity around that meal. Uh, it's also, quite literally, an image of forgiveness and salvation, the Passover, right? So the, the blood gets smeared on the doorposts, uh, so the lamb dies in the place of the oldest child. Uh, and yeah, God is providing uh, there. It's, it's a promise of future salvation, that God will bring them to the promised land. That's part of the reminder, too, as they take it uh, year after year. Uh, he provides for them, obviously delivers them from Egyptian oppression, uh, and the end result is joy. Again, they're supposed to keep this feast every year because this is a reminder of something amazing and wonderful that God has done. It is a feast of celebration. And all those things are true uh, in the New Testament for the Lord's Supper as well. So the Lord's Supper is the symbol of our unity here together. When we take it together as a church, we are saying, again, we are united. We are one. Uh, obviously, it depicts our forgiveness, our salvation forever by Christ's body and blood. Uh, it's a meal that Christ provides for us, for our security, to know we are secure in his love. Uh, it's one of the reasons we take it regularly uh, is because we were reminded, you know, I, yes, I, when I believed, I was, I was forgiven and, and, and justified, but I take it every Sunday to remember that God, that I'm secure forever in the love of Jesus. Jesus says, this is my body for you. Uh, and obviously, it's an occasion to celebrate. And we praise our God for what he's done in the supper. We remember, to use Jesus' own language, uh, we remember him when we take the Lord's Supper. We celebrate him. So, uh, by way of summary, uh, what is food in the Bible? Food is an opportunity. The, the focus of this theme in the Bible, food is an opportunity. It, has, there are, it is an opportunity for good things and an opportunity for bad things. Again, I'll, I'll list five. Uh, so first, it's an opportunity, a meal, is an opportunity to glorify and to thank God. That's what it was in the garden. It's what it will be at the end of time. Uh, as I've already said, I love raising canes. I love Raisin Cane's chicken fingers. When I sit down and I, I eat the nectar of the gods cane sauce, and uh, when I you know, take a bite of that delicious buttery Texas toast, uh, I praise God because he made my taste buds so I can enjoy this wonderful experience. Uh, I praise God for Todd Graves, the founder of Raisin Cane's chicken fingers, uh, for the blessing that he is to all of society. Uh, because I get to partake in something wonderful. So food is a reminder that God has provided, that he is good, that he gives good gifts to his people. First Timothy 4 verse 4, uh, uh, Paul writes, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
So if we receive it with thanksgiving, if we glorify and thank God for the, as the one who provided it, food remains that good thing it was created to be. Uh, so I also have a quote here from, from Calvin that kind of illustrates this helpfully. He says, Although food is a proper provision for our bodily need, so it's, a, it's this necessity, yet the legitimate use of it goes beyond mere sustenance. For good flavors, again, raising canes, chicken fingers, good flavors were not added to food without a purpose, but because our Heavenly Father wishes to give us pleasure with the delicacies He provides. Food is an opportunity to enjoy God. Uh, it is also, conversely, an opportunity to disobey, something that can easily and commonly be abused for sin. Obviously, the most, the most straightforward example of that is Genesis 3. Right? Again, food was the mechanism for our fall. We see though, this, though, uh, all over the Scriptures. Right? So, uh, drunkenness and gluttony are condemned as sins. This overuse, this abuse of, of uh, food and of drink uh, Esau sells his birthright uh, because it seems he has this idolatry of food. The passage is so bizarre where he's like, I'm dying. Give me your soup. And it's like, bro, like calm down. Like this is a, it's not a big deal. Uh, it's just a bowl of soup. I think you, you can wait five minutes. Uh, but there seems to be some kind of uh, some undue love, some, some idolatry of food there. Or think about 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and that's the passage that uh, I've kind of always, already had in your notes there a reference for you uh, regarding the Lord's Supper. The reason Paul is even addressing the Lord's Supper for God's people is because they are abusing it. They are creating factions. They're drawing lines and, and, and saying, oh, you know, only, you know, not everyone can really share it with us. Or, or you know, we're going to eat the most of it. And these people are going to go hungry. These people aren't going to get to share in the meal. The, the very thing that's supposed to show their union becomes a, a means for them to uh, show favoritism and divisiveness. Uh, food can also be a sin when it symbolizes fellowship with the wicked. So this is uh, common, uh, especially in the book of Proverbs, but you see it in a couple of narrative passages as well. So 1 Kings 18 verse 19, uh, there are false prophets. And how do we know they're false prophets? Because it says they eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel, obviously, no bueno, bad, bad, bad. And they're eating at her table. They're saying something through eating with her. They're dining with the wicked. And the same obviously goes for Peter. Uh, when, not that he's dining with the wicked, but when he's refusing to eat with the Gentiles in Galatians uh, chapter, uh, what, chapter 1 or 2. I don't have that here. But um, he's sinning by not eating a meal with his fellow believers. Third, uh, food is an opportunity to invite. I think here by invite, there's a sense certainly of, of hospitality, of inviting someone in to, to share, to care for them, but also just to, to invite them in to share some kind of union. Or do you think of Jesus' forgiveness when he uh, offers Peter a meal after the resurrection, after Peter's denied him three times? Uh, a great biblical example of this is 2 Samuel chapter 9. So David invites uh, Meshibetheth, I think I'm saying that right. Meshibeth, I'm not going to say it again because I said it right the first time. Uh, David invites this guy uh, who is uh, Saul's relative to dine with him. And this guy, again, I'm not going to say his name. It's long and it starts with an M. Uh, he's crippled. 
So he should probably normally would be in this society an outcast. Also, he's a relative of Saul. So he might have a legitimate claim to the throne, which could be a problem for David. And what's David do? He says, come share a meal with me. I want to eat together. He, 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 show, he, he invites in this outcast who, who, who could potentially be a threat to him and shows this love and acceptance uh, that uh, was certainly unexpected and, and probably undeserved. So, yeah, there's a sense in which we can invite through food. Just, just imagine, imagine the difference when you uh, see a homeless man giving him $20 and say, saying, buy yourself something nice, uh, like a nice meal, uh, or saying, hey, come with me, let's, let's go eat a meal together. I want to sit and talk with you. There's something communicated. Yeah, sure, the, what happened was the same. Right, you you ate food, or he ate, he he got a, his empty belly filled. That's what happened. But when you sit down and you speak with him over a meal, it communicates something beyond just the meal. It communicates that you you've honored him in a whole new way. That that what has happened is not just his belly is filled, but his humanity as one made in the image of God is honored uh, and recognized. So we can use food to invite. Uh, food is also an opportunity to exclude. Uh, it can be the opposite. And I actually mean this in a good way. So you'd probably think, okay, invites the good one, excludes the bad one. We don't want to do that. Uh, well, actually, the Lord's Supper, there is a sense, not even a sense, we, what we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we exclude. You hear us every Sunday. We, we fence the table. We say, if you are a baptized believer in Jesus who's not walking in a high-handed sin, because if you're uh, not a believer in Jesus or you're not baptized, you might not be walking in obedience, or if you're walking in a high-handed sin, we might not, you, we're not sure that you're a believer because you're, you're openly rejecting uh, God's commandments and just, just flaunting uh, what obedience looks like, which is one of, one of the main signs someone is actually a believer. So unbelievers are not invited to take the Lord's Supper with us. If you, if you are not a Christian, we don't want you. Actually, the Bible says you drink judgment unto yourself if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So it's a meal. The Lord's Supper is a meal where we exclude, where we mark who really belongs to Jesus. Uh, and uh, one more opportunity that food gives us. It is an opportunity to draw near to God through avoiding it. This, is, this one probably feels a little bit out of left field. Uh, it, it kind of is. Uh, but I, I can't talk about food without talking about fasting. Uh, but I think we can set this in the context that we have. Remember that big, the four meals of the Bible from creation, uh, fall, redemption, and consummation. Uh, food is a gift God gives. It is something he provides to remind us of our dependence on him. So in fasting, it's almost like we're saying, I don't need that intermediary of food to be reminded that I depend on God. I'm actually going to get rid of it and just focus on God. I'm just going to look to him so that I can remember who I ultimately depend on. Because I don't depend on food. I depend on God who gives me food. That's where my dependence lies. It's an intentional way of saying, although food is good, God is better. So that's the story. That's the story Bible tells us about, the Bible tells us about food. Those four main meals and like, I don't know, 500 meals in between. And we'll get to application in just a second. But my main hope, my, 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 uh, my desire for you 
as a, a main takeaway uh, would be that kind of you, when, when you read your Bible, my hope for you is biblical literacy. That when you read your Bible, maybe you're, you know, in Genesis chapter 18 or whatever it is now, as you're reading through a one-year Bible plan or something, as you read through your Bible and you come to a meal, you ask yourself, okay, where is this on the trajectory of those four meals that we see across the whole Bible? And what, uh, what, what is going on here? Is this, what, what is being re- represented? Is this a, a meal of union? Is this a meal uh, of forgiveness? So that when you come to a meal in the Bible, you realize it's not just saying, and they shared a meal together. Cool, they were hungry. Not the point. The point is far deeper and greater than that. So my desire for you is that, that biblical literacy, that you can understand what that meal is communicating. You, you see its significance because you know the story that it's in. I hope that's your main takeaway. Uh, but we do have more than that. Beyond that, uh, and if all this food, talk about food doesn't have your mouths watering, uh, one more section. What does this mean for us? So by way of application, again, I have five. I don't know why five. I mean, they're all fives today. That was not intentional, but it's just, it's just what happens. So uh, first, food, uh, and that first application for food, it is an opportunity for good and evil. So be neither a glutton nor an ascetic. Uh, there are two common temptations you will likely face with food. One is to overindulge uh, or one is to spurn it, to say, I'm better, I don't need that. Uh, for the most part, that's how we are with pretty much everything in life. We either overindulge or we underenjoy God's good gifts. And both of those are idolatry. Both saying, uh, you know, I, I love food, I'm going to obsess over food, food give me what I need, uh, and saying I'm, I'm way better than that food, you know, I'm, I'm above it or whatever, uh, other than a season of fasting, right? Both of those communicate some kind of uh, disordered love, some kind of idolatry. Uh, so if you are prone to asceticism, to rejecting food, recognize that truth from creation. Food is a good gift that God gives us. It's not wrong to celebrate something with a huge meal. Feast. Bible says it. It's okay. You can throw a party and feast. Uh, you don't need to reject it and act you know, better than food. But if you're more prone to gluttony, uh, recognize food is a good gift, but a horrible God. It does not give you what you ultimately need. God is the one who food is, uh, which food is supposed to point you to. Uh, very briefly, I know I'm running low on time. Uh, I find a helpful approach to most things, uh, but specifically for food, it comes from Augustine, uh, his book, De Doctrina. Uh, I think the English is usually on Christian doctrine or on Christian teaching or on Christian education, something like that. Um, usually I find it with the Latin title. Anyway, uh, he talks about using versus enjoying. So Augustine would say, everything in creation fits into two categories, things to be used and things to enjoy. And he's going to say, the only thing that goes in the enjoy category is God. God is the only one you should ever ultimately enjoy for his own sake. But all these other things that can be used are not to be enjoyed in themselves, but to be enjoyed to help to be used to help us see and reflect on and enjoy God. Uh, And food is no different. So don't come to food saying, make me happy. Come to food saying, make me happy in God. 
Remind me of my creator, of my, uh, of my fall. Remind me of my forgiveness in the feast that's coming. Remind me of God. I want to be happy in him. That, food will, that, that approach will set food in its proper context. Uh, second application, prioritize the Lord's Supper. Uh, I know we take it every Sunday here, so maybe you're like, uh, I come every Sunday and I prioritize it. Great. Good job. Keep doing that. We like that. Uh, but my, my point here is, uh, it is not some kind of, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's not some kind of like thing we tack on to the end of the service. It's not like, well, the sermon, that's your Jesus download. That's what we're really here for. And then, you know, we take the Lord's Supper because the Bible says you're supposed to do it, you know, whatever. Uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is obviously spiritually nourishing for us. We're reminded of, of many biblical, wonderful truths. But we also communicate our union together, as I've said about eight times today. Uh, we communicate we are not united with people who do not share this meal, that there are people of God and there are people who are enemies of God. Uh, and it, it, yet, don't jet out after the sermon. I don't know if any of you ever do that, but it needs to be said. Don't jet out after the sermon uh, because the Lord's Supper is something extremely significant to the life of our body together. You are cutting yourself off from something that is spiritually nourishing uh, so prioritize the supper for the beautiful thing that it is. Uh, third, don't stop there. Share meals with your fellow church members. Uh, the Lord's Supper obviously is the main meal of the church, the most symbol symbolically significant meal that we can share. But don't stop at that. I invite people over for lunch after church. Uh, have them to your house during the week. Uh, in Proverbs, dining with the wicked is a bad thing, so dine with the righteous. Uh, invite your fellow church members. Get them into your lives and get yourself into their lives over meals. Uh, a bunch of you know when I, you know, I got here a couple months ago, my basically plan immediately was to get lunches with absolutely as many people as I possibly could so I could get to know you. Not because, you know, noon comes around and I'm hungry every day, although that's true, uh, but because I know that sharing a meal together is different. Uh, it, it's almost like a, an hourglass that's ticking on your conversation where, you know, as long as that's there, we're going to sit and we're just going to talk. We're going to get to know each other. We get this opportunity of a full plate to, uh, to get to know each other. Uh, and I, I genuinely uh, think that a, a culture of healthy relationships and discipleship in a church is almost always married to a culture of getting meals together. A church that, that shares meals outside of this building where we gather uh, is, is going to be a church with a healthy understanding of relationships and discipleship. Uh, and one, one thing I'll, I'll tack on to that uh, that's also just pretty simple is come to the church picnic. Uh, we, we did not do research that said, you know, when you get people to share meals together, they really like each other more, and that's how to get your church to like each other. That's probably true. There's probably research about that. But we did it because the Bible teaches this, that, that when you share meals together with people, there's actually something uh, spiritual that's happening. You are communicating a fellowship. You are, you are getting to know each other. You are, uh, yeah, maybe if you're angry at someone and you share a meal together, you communicate that forgiveness. Uh, you celebrate. There's all these things in the Bible. Meals matter. Fourth application, parents 
Eat meals as a family. Everything I've said should apply to that. Eat meals as a family. Don't let the craziness of life to keep you from sharing meals together. Is that the regular habit in your home? Is your life so crazy, so busy, that a meal together around the same table is an uncommon occurrence? If that's the case, you're probably missing out on something really, really big for the discipleship of your kids and the union of your family. Uh, Carl, last year, uh, I'm going to repeat what he said because it was really good. Uh, last year in a tech on parenting, talked about the, he had three C's. Uh, the first one was Carl. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, three C's, create, capture, and commemorate, right? So cr- you create time, make intentional time for discipleship, study the word with your kids. You, you capture you capitalize, another C, you like that, Carl? Uh, you, you, you get things, uh, what, what was I saying? I made a joke. Uh, yeah, capture. Uh, you talk about things that happen throughout the day, right? You, you capture moments to talk, teach your kids, talk about the majesty of God, and you commemorate, you mark and remember occasions that are significant, like your kid's baptism or graduation or something like that. Um, I think all of those can easily be done around a meal. So easily. And again, a meal is a full plate, like a ticking time that you would just get to sit together. You could sit around a table and be like, okay, everyone, we're going to talk now about what we learned. Remember how you helped me with the gardening? And you know why you need to do gardening? Because creation's in rebellion. You know, and you could do that. But if you're sitting around a meal, it is so much easier. And frankly, the kids are more likely to pay attention. Um, It's one of the best times to to create time, to capture, and to commemorate. Throw a party, throw a feast uh, when your kids uh, get baptized or uh, graduate. Meals with your your family are too important, so don't miss them. Uh, Fifth and finally, uh, I'll do this one very quickly, evangelize around meals. This is a great way to get to invite unbelievers in to understand the truths of the gospel. And guess what? As hopefully you can already discern, you can sit with lunch across the table from someone at lunch and use the meal you're sharing to talk about the gospel. Talk about how food in the beginning was created, that God provided food for us, and it's a sign that he cares deeply, that he made us and he provides for us. But tell them how we didn't trust God for our food, and so we, we decided to eat Satan's food instead. That all of humankind is plunged into darkness and death and rebellion because we ate the wrong meal. And then tell them how Christ came and said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Take and eat of it. And invite them to take and eat of Christ through faith. And then tell them that one day Christ will return and we will have a feast with him forever. And we will know joy and celebration forever and ever and be with our God. Don't miss that opportunity. Use food, evangelize around meals. Uh, I don't have book recommendations for you uh, because there's not much on this. It's not your typical biblical theme. Uh, I do have restaurant recommendations. I also know Tim has every restaurant recommendation you could ever ask for. So you can talk to him or or me or or whatever. Uh, Let's pray. And then if we haven't burned all our time, we can do some Q&A. Jared will let me know. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for food. I thank you that you give us food and that ultimately Christ has provided the meal we need most desperately, the meal of himself. And I pray, Father, that we would not lose sight of the significance of uh, this thing that's such a staple of our lives that we so easily just blow through and think it's just kind of a tertiary thing.
Father, help us to see it as your word sees it and help us to walk with you in faith and obedience for Christ's sake. Amen.